This is the story of Welcome to America, produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. Welcome to episode two of this series, as we continue our exploration of Prince's shelved 2010 album, Welcome to America, which is being released from his vault on July 30th. We spent the first episode talking about how the individual pieces of these songs came together in his studio at Paisley Park. For this episode, we're going to get a little further into the lyrics on this album and learn about the conversations Prince was having in 2010 about social issues and politics in the U.S., I'm Andrea Swenson, and I'm co-hosting this episode with someone who knew Prince really well, his longtime musical director and bandmate in the NPG, Mr. Morris Hayes. Hey, Morris. Hey, Andrea. I'm excited to be here. Now, Morris, before we get into talking about Welcome to America, I want to make sure people understand just how long you performed and worked with Prince. How many decades was it again? How many decades, man? Uh, I spent two decades. Uh, I started in 1992, at the end of 1992, and went to about 2012, with a few years in the middle with Maceo Parker, the legend himself. And, um, you know, so uh, I also worked uh, at the studio, like just doing odd jobs, you know, production assistant, things like this, in the late 80s, uh, while they were filming uh, Graffiti Bridge. That's when I kind of started working around, doing whatever I could, you know, just to be in the building, you know. And you were Prince's musical director, in addition to playing keyboards live and co-producing these songs in the studio. What does it mean to be Prince's musical director? Well, with Prince, it's um, it's a different type of a situation than most, uh, I would say, musical directors' gigs, because Prince was the musical director. And I uh, just kind of stood in for him here and there. I mean, nevertheless, it was uh, a, a lot of work, as you can imagine, with anything with Prince. I think you have to be prepared for whatever happens, you know. So it was a, a tough gig at times. Oh, I'm sure. Your perspective on this whole Welcome to America album is invaluable because you are one of the first people who actually got to hear some of these raw tracks Prince had been recording. So he'd been working at Paisley Park in early 2010 with the bassist Tal Wilkenfeld, the drummer Chris Coleman, and his NPG vocalists Shelby, Liv, and Elisa. Morris, what do you remember about hearing these songs from Welcome to America for the first time? It was kind of cool. I mean, you know, he called me like he normally does. Hey, man, uh, can you come by Paisley and uh, I want you to hear something? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, no big deal. That's something would happen all the time. But this time I get there and he's sitting out in the car. I used to call it the Batmobile. He's got this little black convertible uh, and had a pretty nice sound system in it. And so um, he tells me to hop in when I get there and he starts playing this. Now, at this point, everything's done. I mean, as far as basic tracks, I mean, he's got the basic tracks there and he, he's flowing already. He got bass, drum, guitar, and he's got the singers on and it's some, some some scratch vocals, but mostly completed vocals. And and he's just kind of going through each song, you know, song by song, telling me, you know, how this one came around and, and, and you know, he's talking about Tal, how she's like, yeah, this girl's like severe, like, you know, she's dope and everything. And, and so I was like, "Wow, okay." I'm so I'm I'm like, "Wow, this is crazy." I didn't know he was even working with these guys. And and because he tells me at first, he said, "What I want you to do is just like take this record, just overproduce it, just do what you want to do. I'll take anything away that I don't need, and uh, you know, and just do your thing. What you do, what you do." Hot summer, 
we all know how many hit albums that Prince has made over his career. He didn't need me or anybody else to come and co-produce, produce, or do anything for him. He had already done records for years that were, you know, smashes on his own. So he didn't have to call me for that. But he just, uh, you know, allowed me to have my perspective. And I think that was a, a beautiful gesture on his part. And, and the fact that he let me take it home and work on it, which, you know, a problem with Prince is he was very impatient and, and rough, man. So you'd be, at, at, you know, you were recording and he'd be like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. He's like, yeah, we I can't tell you, use that sound, use that sound. And then you can't, I like to like, okay, like, let me dial through all of the clap sounds. And he is not <laughs> waiting for me to dial through no clap sounds, man. He's like, use that one. <laughs> you know? So I, it was great that I got to take it home, take a track home and it, bring it back the next day. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Hot summer. That's great. Yeah, I like this song now. It was, it was just, it was a sublime uh, experience. Just wait and see. Hot summer. For this episode, we're going to get deeper on the lyrical content of Welcome to America. Morris, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this. And we also have a couple of very special guests joining us, starting with one of your old friends, Kieran Sharma, who was Prince's manager from 2009 to 2014. Yes, Kieran Sharma. Uh, Kieran is a longtime friend, and uh, uh, I was very excited uh, uh, to have her come on board. Uh, you know, Prince had asked me about if I knew someone that uh, could handle that position. And I uh, immediately thought of her, and I said, yeah, I got somebody that I believe can handle it. And I, and I knew she would be great for it, and she was. Kieran, I'm curious if you could just describe, you know, for people that might not know what it means to be Prince's manager, someone who really likes to be in control of his environment and what he's doing that day and what he's doing in his career. What, what was your job? My job was quite vast, but I remember even the first time we sort of really talked seriously about me taking on the management role. He said to me, uh, do you like sleep? <laughs> and, I, and he was like, because you're not going to get very much. And then the other thing was, he was like, uh, do you have any gray hair? And I was like, why? And he said, because you're going to get a lot by the, time I'm, by the time you finish with me. But the role itself, yeah, it was tough. I mean, we did a lot of touring. So it was to pull together the tour, to work with promoters, to negotiate all the deals, to work with press and publicity, to maintain the brand in its entirety. And we would have talks about the brand and his brand and what it meant and how it's shown to the world. Um, we'd look at publishing, we'd look into record sales distribution, because of the speed in which he worked, you know, he was he was always just forward thinking, and there was just so much to do every day um, for everyone. And it's not just directed at me. He would have everyone's next day mapped out across the board. I mean, it was a he must have been exhausted all the time. But because having to think about what every single person in the band and the my role and in, in every aspect, what we need to be doing the next day was huge. You know, we were all really. I mean, if you're being really honest about everything, we're all there just to facilitate this, he, you know, him and his output. That, that's, a, that's a great way to look at it, uh, his output. Uh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, on all levels, and, you know, my part was one of those parts, and everyone else, we all had a different part to play. And, uh, you know, I would always consider myself a facilitator just for what he needed 
to be done. You know, and if he could have done it all himself, I'm sure he would have. But he would always say to me, he would always say, this is, you know, this is your responsibility. You need to take care of all of that. I'm just the guitar player. <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> this is Check the Record from Welcome to America. I would love to hear more about, you know, specific conversations that were had. I do get the sense that this was a a point where he was really thinking about what he wanted to say next in his work and also what role he wanted to play in the movement or in the political situation in America. You know, what was on his mind? What was he saying? There was, I mean, there was a couple of times that he was like, can we reach out to Obama? He wanted to have a meeting with him. Um, and so twice, actually, I reached out to the White House and we, and I think they had probably done that before, but but at least on my, in my time, we, and we had two dates that we scheduled and then both times they were canceled for various reasons. But I think at that time he felt like there was an opportunity for things that he cared about to be heard. That was everything through, you know, obviously arts and music, um, and specifically the entertainment industry um, and what was happening within it, but it was also education. We didn't actually have that meeting, unfortunately, because we were moving quite fast at that time. There was a lot of touring, but I know it was definitely something that he was thinking about. Morris, did he talk to you much about those kind of issues? Yeah, well, I know the one thing was, you know, as Black folks, we were all elated about you know, President Obama and the prospect of, you know, having his first uh, black president. I I can tell you Prince had a kind of slightly different take on it in terms of like, I think his whole thing was, no, 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 we're not going to give him a pass on on just that. Hope and change. Mm. Everything takes forever. The truth is a new minority. Oh, welcome to me. We're going to talk to him and, and see what really that, that can be done uh, in a meaningful way. And, and, and I mean, it's all well and good that, you know, we got, we got our first uh, African-American president. However, uh, we have to take the opportunity to really speak truth to power and, and, and really try to see what we can, as a community, get from this new president. Let's see what it is for real. You know, it didn't take anything at face value. And just uh, think that it was just going to be everything was hokey doke now because uh, we got this guy in. And so I, I don't want people to get the wrong impression. You know, he could be cool with anybody, but he would absolutely speak truth to power. That's a, I mean, he wasn't scared of nobody.
You mentioned education being one of his priorities. What were some of the other things that he had hoped to talk to Obama about or that he really was, you know, wanting to advance? Well, I know Prince loved kids. I mean, he always was concerned about kids. He was concerned about education, about music education. Uh, you know, we always said, you know, we want kids not to forget these different things and be able to pick up an instrument and learn music. But also, you know, just things going on in the in the neighborhood, you know. And the thing about it, if you don't have a good situation at home, it's very difficult to, to really thrive and do well anywhere else. So I think he was focused on just anything that's going to, like, improve life with family and things of that nature. And what Prince was very cool about is any of us that lived in different places, if we ever happened to do a concert in our hometowns, he'd give Shelby a big check or give Blackwell a check. He'd give us all money. Or uh, he asked me if I'd find three different charities in Chicago that he could give a bunch of money to. He just said, just find me three places and we're just going to give him some money. Just like that. And so knowing what he cares about, then you just look for things that you know, anything that's helping kids, anything that's helping families. And then he'll make an assessment and say, yeah, we're going to hand them some money and, and do that. So that was a real big deal of his. But for the most part, I think a lot of things that he did was very anonymous. And- it was. I think the only time we did a big like press thing was when, when we did the money to the Harlem Children's Zone. You know, but that was very much because we were in New York and he thought, well, it's a big platform. I mean, it was the beginning of the tour and, you know, it was a big platform to, to spread awareness. And he very much tried to make it not about him on the day um, and, you know, bought all the kids from the Harlem Children's Zone in early so they could come and they could run around stage and play all the instruments. And the band came out and he came out and he spoke to all of them about sort of honing a craft and learning a skill and, you know, and picking up instruments because, in the way that the entertainment industry was changing, he was a big believer that you have to still play, you have to learn and um, and have that kind of true, real music talent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, thinking about this album and, you know, you both heard it back then and then now I've had a chance to hear it again 11 years later. Are the lyrics mirroring these conversations that he was having at that time? Mass media, information overload. Welcome to America. Distracted by the features of the iPhone. In other words, taken by a pretty face. Welcome to America. Hook up later at the iPad. Or we can meet at my place. Well, for me, I know we definitely would talk about a lot of those things and not just in a vacuum. I think lots of times Prince would talk about the things with these cell phones, with technology, with ownership. You know, it was a big thing for Prince was ownership, even dating back from slave. uh, The period in the 90s, he was doing the whole thing with the slave on the face. Uh, It was always about making people aware uh, that if you don't own your work, if you don't own your own situation, then you're just, you don't have anything. And... And I think this was a continuation from from that and, and from what what he was uh, thinking and, uh, and always looking to teach and just empower people. That was a big thing for Prince. Like whenever he would meet with any of these new artists, you know, Alicia Keys, uh, any of these folks, the conversations he's had was centered mostly around owning your own material, owning your publishing and all of your rights, you know. Street. 
is Running Game, Son of a Slave Master from Welcome to America. That was a big thing for him. And so this was a, a, a sustained attack. On, on that type of thing. And I think like son of a slave owner and, and welcome to America. He was going in. He was really letting people know that this, this is what you got to do. And it was on all, all levels, wasn't it? It was on everything from like Instagram and the way people portray themselves to like the banking system to, you know, to education and all the kind of contradictions that we live in today. It was all about, you know, bettering yourself in order to better your community and, and, and everyone else. Um, and not to fall for sort of the... As we call it, the hokey doke. The hokey <laughs> Don't fall for the hokey doke. The hokey doke, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kieran, from talking to you, I get the sense that there was a really pivotal moment at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 2009. And Morris, you were in attendance for this as well. So I would love to hear from both of you memories of that specific night. <laughs> that was an amazing night for both of us. Um, like we talk about that quite often. And um, it was, for me, what came out of it because of the, the topics of discussion, it was the beginning of kind of this sort of thought process for Prince and this sense of kind of, um, yeah, this kind of new sort of influence. And um, that, I mean, it was part of the night. And, uh, yeah, we were in Montreux, weren't we, Morris? Yeah, yeah. And after the show, uh, like like with lots of shows, uh, you know, lots of guests come along and Cornell West and Tavis Smiley were there dancing <laughs> a lot all through the show like crazy. It was amazing. <laughs> but afterwards, as, as we would often do, we would go back to the hotel and hang out and have dinner. And we did on this night with Tavis and Cornell and Morris and I and we ended up sort of starting off the evening ordering pasta and having dinner and having a very nice prayer around the table and then just talking and talking and talking about literally everything but powerful conversations that yeah. were just so inspiring and um and this went on till daylight the next day so it was i think it was eight o'clock in the morning when we looked out the window and we yeah, looked over yeah. lake geneva didn't we yeah and at one point, it was just like we were we were kids. We yeah. crawled out of we crawled out of yeah. a window. <laughs> That's right. Like all of us grown men and a lady in a nice dress <laughs> and heels. We in heels climbing. We wanted over a hedge we wanted to get back. on the roof. <laughs> yeah, now I remember how it happened because Prince disappeared and we, and we were sort of left chatting. And this was this was now at eight o'clock in the morning, and he disappeared. And then all of a sudden, all I hear is. Sharma. And so I go into the bedroom and I'm looking around. I can't see him. And then I hear this Sharma. And I'm like, where's it coming from? So I go out. These patio doors are open. So I go out onto a little terrace and I'm standing there and I still can't see him. And I hear Sharma. And over this like hedge, he's crawled out. He's like climbed over this hedge, uh, which was like maybe a meter and a half tall. And he's standing on the rooftop of the hotel behind the sign. Uh, a giant sign. A giant of, yellow light yeah. sign, yeah. And he's standing on the roof and he's like, go get everyone. 
<laughs> he's like, go get everyone. And I'm like, okay. So we all get back. And I remember you all helping me. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? But it was it was great. Once we got on the roof, we just looked around, you know, Montreux and, and just... Uh, I remember we sat there like children and we felt like children, you know, because it, yeah. it was a bit naughty. <laughs> but, uh, but it was very fun, yeah. And it was one of those... Very memorable nights. I mean, I have a lot of moments with Prince, but that right there was like something you just see, like you think you see in a movie, like a, yeah. a like a movie scene. It was just like something like this, you know, like you could see it like Stand By Me or something. It was just one of those type of things, you know. It was lovely because it was like lots of universal conversations and it was, you know, all this, everything that was happening at the time with Obama and... You know, there was just lots of very, very interesting oh, yeah. company yeah. and conversation because obviously, you know, speaking with Cornell, it was just, it was just very enlightening, at least for me, because, you know, growing up in England and, and then spending lots of time in America, but it was just, it was very enlightening. So Kieran, did you say that Prince had actually written a song that night after this conversation, the memorable night at Montreal? Yeah, I mean, he sort of talked about how he had stayed up writing all night. <laughs> I remember we all went to bed. Morris went to go and get his flight. I went to sleep at around, like, whatever, 8.30, whenever it was, 9 o'clock. And I remember just getting a call at 11, going, hey, are you up? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I am now. And, and he was like, oh, I've just been writing for the last couple of hours. And he was so, he seemed so happy and excited about the future. And it was really lovely to see. He had already finished recording pretty much all of 2010 at that point, 2010 album. So he was thinking about what was coming next. And we were already, he was already in the mindset of what he was going to do next, a welcome to America. And, and I think, you know, these are the kind of conversations he was having with a lot of people. And that kind of led into that quite neatly. Morris, as I was listening to you and Kieran talk about this night at the Montreux Festival, I had this overwhelming thought. You know, we have to talk to Dr. Cornell West. We have to talk to Dr. West. Who else to help us understand what Prince was thinking and saying at this moment when he began working on this record? Thankfully, he agreed to talk to us, and we're going to share just a small part of the wonderful conversation that Morris and I had with the legendary academic, philosopher, and activist Dr. Cornell West. Well, one of the first things that I recall is that uh, Brother Prince just never slept. You know, I never saw him get a wink. I mean, after the concert, he and he, he's like Louis Armstrong or like James Brown. He, he enacted kenosis. He left every fiber of his being right there on stage. And yet, right after, he's ready to hit the road and got more energy. So it's like the more he gave, which was everything, the more he had and received, which was everything. And you see, that's that's the benchmark of real genius. And you see, I mean, Curtis Mayfield was like that. James Brown was like that. Aretha was like that. Mahalia was like that. James Cleveland was like that. All of the great artists, they enact this kenosis and they are able to give it all. So that's Montreal. Now, I also remember spending time with uh, Quincy. You remember that, Brother Morris? Yes, sir. And we spent some time with Quincy Jones as well. And then, uh, of course, Brother Tavis was there. We had one of time with Tavis, but I think there was a side of Prince that the world, a lot of the world didn't know, and that was his jazz
could sit there and just play the piano all by himself and move from popular music to jazz. Then you get to Montreux and have a jazz show. Then the next show is funk and rhythm and blues and silky soul. I mean, you know, the multi-dimensional character of his genius was just too much for the world. It's 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 too much for the world. <laughs> but if you can embrace all of them, oh, have mercy. You got a Prince experience. And, and doctor, you, you hit on something that was extraordinarily poignant. And I, I don't think a lot of people don't realize that with all the great artists, they share that similar DNA that is the thing that causes them to go up and beyond the, the average mortal. You know what I mean? That's true. All of the great artists, Michael Jackson, all of the ones that had like all of these great qualities, they all had that one ethic, that work ethic, that thing that that drove them to be the best and try to be top in the field. And you see what underlies that for me. You see it in James Brown. We gonna rock that stage and leave everything we got in us there. Bootsy was the same way when I was blessed to be on the stage with Bootsy. But what underlies that for me, and you know, tell me what you think, is authorizing a better world and space than the world and space people find themselves. So through kenosis, through emptying yourself, you allow folk to see and feel different worlds. You know, it's like Sun Ra going to take you to the planet, like George Clinton going to put you on the mothership. Prince is going to, like Sly Stone, take you higher, like Prince and Sly Stone all intertwined. Of course, you got Larry Graham sitting up there with his genius mediating between Sly and the Family Stone and Prince himself. But it authorizes a better world and it touches us at the depths of our humanity. I don't care what color, what sexual orientation, what national identity you are. You can open yourself and be touched by their cause, by their kenosis, their emptying such that you do feel as if there's an alternative reality, an alternative world you have access to, if only for a moment, if only in the music. You know, the great August Wilson used to say, Everything I write on the stage is an attempt to authorize a different reality through the language, through the styles, through the words and dialogues of a great people. And he's absolutely right about that. That is so spot on. And it actually reminds me of one of the songs on this record. It's called A Thousand Light Years From Here. And the lyrics are really about imagining a different place. And as you say, a brighter future, a, a different way of being with each other in community with each other. And I actually wanted to read you a little bit of this verse and get your reaction to, Ooh, to, Lord, Lord, yes. <laughs> to what you think about this. So we can live underwater 
It ain't hard when you've never been part of the country on dry land. We used to be smarter. We taught them what they know and now got to show what it means to be American. We can live underwater. It ain't hard when you've never been a part of the country on dry land. We used to be smarter. We taught them what they know. And now we got to show what it means to be American. Good life, good life. Liberty, innovation. innovation. Every child, no matter what color, getting education. education. Now, life in the hood is nothing to fear. One thousand light years away from me. Lord have mercy. Yeah, Prince of Genius is working on a lot of different levels. There, one is the this this sense of what the great Robin D.G. Kelly calls freedom dreams. That to dream of a different space and a different historical moment than the one we're in is an enactment of a dream of freedom. It's like Commodore Zoom. We're gonna take you away. Well, I like to go away. I dream of a freedom. I've taught in prisons for 41 years. And uh, that's one of the anthems of the brothers, the Zoom by the Commodore. Like flying away, Ralph Ellison's great story. Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon, flying away. Well, Prince is part of that tradition. How do you go, how are you gonna fly away, transcend, and then tell the truth about the country, tell the truth about the circumstances in which you find yourself now as you ascend? It's like Coltrane's ascension. Where you going, train? Get on the train. Get on this love train and see what train takes you. Get on this love train and see what Prince takes you. Get on this love train and see where Aretha takes you. You know what I mean? And it's true. You see it in Leonard Cohen. You see it in Dylan. But the highest levels, I mean, Prince, we had to just be honest about this. See, Prince is the greatest genius and giant of his generation of the greatest tradition in the modern world of artistic creativity, spiritual fortitude, and moral courage. And that's the Black musical tradition. See, there's no other people in the history of the modern world who have been hated chronically and systemically for 400 years to keep dishing out the highest levels of love. There's no other people who've been terrorized 400 years every day to keep dishing out the highest levels of freedom dream. There's no other people who've been traumatized 400 years every day and keep producing wounded healers because that's what Prince was. He was wounded. We can go back to the story of Sister Maddie and Brother John and bullies on, on the playground and he's wrestling with his wounds and his scars and his bruises just like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong and Billy Holiday. And what you going to do with your wounds? I'm going to take you somewhere and just like in the lyrics you read, Sister Andrea, I'm going to heal you as I educate you, as I enrich you, as I empower you, as I enable you, but you'll never forget about the funk from which you come, because all of us in the funk, you in space and time, you in history, you subject to catastrophe. Catastrophe is on its way to your house, one way or the other, death of a loved one. That's catastrophe. White supremacy, catastrophe, male supremacy, catastrophe, poverty, catastrophe. Keeping it Franklin, Benjamin Banneker was never born a slave. I hand off if George Washington. 
like Prince, like the great figures of the black musical tradition, we're going to take you somewhere. Like the staple singers. I'll take you there. Connected to Curtis. I'll t- where you going to take us? To a place of deep love, courage, community, joy, fun. But we ain't going to fake the funk. That's when Prince gives his indictment of America. Right there in those lines. Pow, 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 pow. Then he just keep on moving. He just keep on moving. Yes, indeed, indeed. You're absolutely right, Doctor. And uh, I can attest to, uh, you know, Prince used to tell me like growing up how it was with stepdad how it was with you know different cats i uh, used to beat him up and you know take turns beating him up because you know it's like right. your, your turn to beat prince day my turn your, you beat him yesterday you know so he told me that and i just was like wow that's just crazy man but through it all uh he knew he was on a mission that's exactly right he had he had something to do that was greater even greater than himself and so i i think um you know, the doctor is just it's just great to hear, you know, you and Prince were such good friends and and and, and you're, you know so much history and knowledge about so many different artists that you just pin this guy just spot on. Because I'm telling you, the day to day conversations, that's exactly what I take away from from Prince and, and, and how he wrote and how he looked at life and 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 what he thought was important, especially when it comes to education. And he wanted to bring people also into that. Absolutely. I mean, people, you know, they look at me as an educator because I teach and write. But Prince exemplified the highest levels of, of, of what education really is and really means. It's the formation of attention. It's the cultivation of a critical consciousness. It's the maturation of a compassionate soul. He was a spiritual seeker. He was an intellectual explorer. And he was an artistic Artist, I mean, this was an artist forever in process. And that's what education really is. He fuses the spirituality of questioning with the spirituality of loving. And, and that's crucial because, you know, love is about vulnerability. It's about intimacy. It's about opening yourself. But questioning is a very dangerous thing because it means you transgress the boundaries. And it means you have to have the courage to be yourself enough, given all your wounds and scars. But you got to have the courage to be yourself, to step on on the edge of the cliff or what Shirley Caesar calls stepping out on nothing and landing on something. But the other side that's so deep about Prince was he's unapologetically black, unapologetically human, unapologetically himself as a particular black man, a free black man. Correct. All three levels. 
So you got particularity. He ain't denying it. Specificity. He ain't denying it. This is a black thing, y'all. James Brown is different than Mick Jagger. We love Mick, but Mick need to sit down when James <laughs> hits the stage. Anybody know that? Dr. West, I, I do have a question, though, man. How did you and Prince meet? I think we actually met through Tavis, because, you know, Prince and Brother Tavis were close. Yeah. And then it became a kind of uh, uh, independent thing in terms of our uh, communications and so forth. I was, uh, But I was always very, very... Uh, blessed profoundly blessed to uh to have his brotherhood and his trench remember when i was doing my third album never forget that prince we asked prince to uh use his music for my spoken word i mean i wasn't ain't no hip-hop artist but i do my spoken word that was pretty political and uh, he said well i don't really use my music for hip-hop uh stuff brother west but i do it for you i know you got the right spirit and everything i said brother it's one of the greatest songs i have in my life uh, just to have your, your song and what, what I mean, Harvard don't mean nothing compared to that kind of association with Prince. You see what I mean? It's also true too about this remark about Curtis Mayfield. Prince told me about this record when he called me up and told me to come through. And, um, you know, uh, Prince Prince had such a, a great respect and deep love for you, Dr. West, because he'd always talked about you. And, uh, you know, and Prince is funny, man. When he's in that great mood, he'd, he'd be like, you know, very animated and like using us that Prince. <laughs> now, see, Morris, this song right here, you know, this one has got smoke on it. And, uh, you know, we'd be talking and uh, it'd be funny, you know. But we get to the one, uh, Born to Die, and he said, I, he said, let me tell you about how I got, I got this. And he said, I was on YouTube, you know, because Prince would just sometimes just like binge on YouTube and go down the wormhole. And he said, he said, you know, I love Dr. West. And he said, I was watching a lot of Dr. West. And I came across this one where he was talking about Curtis Mayfield. And uh, and he said, <laughs> when he said that, he said, he said, yeah, so Dr. West was like, you know, Prince, that's my brother. He's a good brother. He ain't not Curtis Mayfield. And he said, oh, really? <laughs> so he said, I had to get Dr. West on this one. He said, I had to get him. I love it. I love it. I love it. Born to die. He played the track for me, and I was like, oh, snap. I said, Prince, I got you, man. I, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. You understood. You understood. But you can see the connection to Superfly. You can see the connection to Freddie's oh, yeah. Dead. You see the connection to the cocaine song, I'm so glad I got my own. My life's a natural high. Yeah. I'm so glad he did it because I'm telling you, man, it's one of my favorite tracks on that record. She that's a cold jam, man. It's got a Curtis Mayfield vibe that is so rich, but it puts a smile on Curtis's face from the grave. You know how rare that is, man? I call him the king. He called himself Prince. I said, why do you underestimate yourself, brother? You were king, too. Lester Young was the best. Duke was the Duke. 
You know what I mean? Right. Latif was right. the queen. Aretha's the queen. Yeah. Beyonce, queen. That's our royalty. That's our nobility. You the king. Well, I know Prince is cool for me. I'm after my father, Prince Nelson, and I. We understand, brother. We love you, friends. We shall never, ever, 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 ever forget you and your genius and your love. Thank you so much, brother. This has been such a treat. Indeed. Love you, love you, though, brother. Love you, sister Andre. Appreciate you, too. Coming up next on The Story of Welcome to America, Shelby J. will return to co-host an episode about Prince's thoughts on emerging technologies in this era, something that he was writing about throughout the Welcome to America album. We'll also chat with the engineer Jason Agel, who Prince tapped to mix the record in the fall of 2010. Like I said, I didn't know we were like necessarily mixing an album. Right. right? Just like we didn't know we were like making an album. Like... <laughs> And while we were singing, like, we just sing it. <laughs> the story of Welcome to America is produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. This story was written and co-produced by me, Andrea Swenson. Morris Hayes was my co-host. Anna Wegel is our producer. And Corey Shreppel is our technical director. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Zach Hockable, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. Order your copy of Welcome to America at Prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for The Story of Welcome to America on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. What are we, what are we, what are we?